0: loosen up i feel like i got tens after that arsenal liverpool
1: <laughs> they're both red they're both in europe they're both in england I know. It's, it's a relational miss we'll we'll catch up
0: we will here we go hey everyone i'm noah barnett and today in the studio we have brady josephson from charity water brady thanks for being in the studio with us today Thanks for having me. Uh, Listen, I mentioned Brady and I mentioned Charity Water, so I know people are already listening and excited to really get into the weeds on unpacking and unplugging some campaigns and how Charity Water really approaches marketing, but even beyond that, like how you've led and guided uh, organizations, nonprofits to do purposeful kind of marketing. And so we want to get into that. But before we do, I have one question for you. What was the first brand or marketing campaign that made an impression on you? And how did you get into
1: purposeful marketing? Yeah, and uh, two very different answers. Um, the first, most impactful, like marketing campaign that I can remember is Nike, and a bunch of them, right? So there's like the Bo nose, Bo Jackson playing the different sports. Mm. You know, I played a lot of sports growing up. Not that I'm Bo Jackson level, you know, athlete. Nobody is, but that really resonated. Uh, I have a scrapbook of Deion Sanders somewhere in this room. Another multi-sport athlete, and then. Um, Ken Griffey Jr. did a campaign with Nike that had a, the slogan was nobody's perfect because Ken Griffey Jr. was essentially the most perfect baseball player. And I had that poster on my wall. And so it was like, when I was thinking about it, there was multiple Nike campaigns, which says a lot about why Nike is the brand that it is. So Nike, 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 yeah. Nike, Nike, Nike.
0: Okay. So you love Nike. You know, that was a campaign that had uh impact on you, but then you went the opposite direction because you don't sell <laughs> shoes or athletic clothes, clothes or promises to people that will never get there. <laughs> um, so what, yeah, what what got you into purposeful
1: marketing? Yeah, you know I, I was studying elementary education at the on the north side of Chicago at North Park University. I've always had a heart for people. I love kids and thought my, my role was to be you know a role model and that's how I can make an impact in the lives of of the youths uh, was was being a male role model teacher when they were young. You know, really important age. Um, Took a business class and had an emphasis on marketing, uh, Professor Al Kaminsky. Uh, and it was like, ooh, what is this? This is interesting. And it felt like this whole side of me, you know, my, my parents aren't in business or marketing. No one in my family is, you know, electricians and farmers and coaches and pastors, but like no business people for the most part. And so it was like this whole world that I never really seen or engaged in. It was like really, really interesting and appealing. And same time, there was a tsunami in Southeast Asia, uh, two thousand, end of two thousand three, early two thousand four. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, and it yeah. it uh, like rocked the world, obviously. But I remember we had this like candlelight vigil on the campus, and it just wrecked me seeing hundreds of thousands of lives mm-hmm. get washed away in an instant. I'm um, getting chills now. I'm still thinking about it. But the other thing was they showed all these images and some clips of people responding, NGOs responding, and it was literally like, that's, that's what I want to do. And so I changed my major mm-hmm. the next week, started focusing on business with a focus on nonprofit management and some twists and turns in there. But really, it was, it was a shift in my early 20s to say, this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah. And ever since, you've been kind of doing
0: are helping either helping nonprofits think well about doing marketing and fundraising, and now in your new role leading um, growth and marketing for Charity Water. And so I know that people are curious, like, how does Charity Water think about marketing,
1: especially coming from the mouth of the person heading that up? I think for me in this phase, it's it is saying, um, how do we go? We're a hundred million dollar organization now, which is crazy. You know, it's taken fifteen years to get to this point. It's been a fast growth, rapid yeah. growth lot of high growth years but it's that same concept what got you here won't get you there and I think we as an organization as a leadership team and marketing growth team are saying we can't just always go back to the tried and true charity water playbook we have to find ways to stay true to who we are as an organization and a brand but find new avenues of growth, if we are going to continue to do the things that we want to do, which is continue to grow and ultimately play a significant role in ending the water crisis in our lifetime. So that's really the phase, you know, where we're at. And I think the big shift for me is thinking yeah. about it's not squeezing out another 10% performance by the end of the year. It's saying, what are the things that we have to do today so we can have a million monthly giving program three years from now, or $100 million monthly giving program seven years from now, which is a very different way of thinking about performance and growth that you don't often have the luxury of doing in nonprofit. So we're trying to find that balance of performance today and and destination and how do those two things align and where are they competing? Because it's really, really critical.
2: Hey friends, Emily here from Feather, taking a pause from this stripped down conversation to share a quick story. The International Justice Mission, or IJM, is a global nonprofit with a mission to end childhood slavery in our lifetime. Each year end, IJM runs a holiday gift campaign that gives supporters real life stories of the impact a gift can make. But as another year drew to a close and goals got bigger, the IJM team decided to partner with us to level up their digital campaigns. IJM used Feather's nonprofit marketing platform and support from their Feather co pilot to launch multiple campaigns around the web to expand their reach to a larger audience. The result? They brought in $109,500, the highest amount they had ever received through digital ads. By meeting their donors where they were, IJM was able to close out a difficult year with a big win. Feather is trusted by nonprofits of all shapes and wingspans. From the arts to animal welfare and everything in between. Don't rely on magic this year-end. Use Feather to streamline your digital marketing campaigns and exceed your goals. Learn more and get started today at feather.co. That's feather without the last e.co.
0: You mentioned how you know, man, Charity Wire's gone through some hyper growth. Uh, they've, it's evolved and changed. The problems you guys are tackling now are different than the problems you were tackling, let's say, three, five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. What has not changed about how you guys think about marketing and its community and its cause?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because I think that's the thing, is the, the things that make Charity Water Charity Water, they've done such a great job of sticking to that. And one of them at, at a root cause is care for donors of all kinds. doesn't matter if you give $5 a month five hundred dollars a year five thousand five million and it's a bit of a cliche to talk about and it's something that we talk about and you hear from stages is like oh we should care for all our donors i've never seen an organization that lives that out as well as as charity water does and it is really not not easy especially as you grow and, and donors you got so many more donors like there is a fundamental care around donors and part of it's rooted in the vision the vision's to reinvent charity. And part of our founding story is to say, there's a lot of brokenness in philanthropy and charity and nonprofits. Let's try to fix it. And I don't think everything that we've done or do is perfect, but mm. that's a different lens that we view it through. And part of it is a lot of times you get five bucks and you get ignored. And we're trying to be a cause at scale, an organization at, at scale where that's not, that's not your experience with us. And I think that has been core. And it we fight really hard and spend a lot of energy to make that core today because the easiest thing in the world is to be like, oh, we're trying to raise X millions. What's your $5? And it's just you, you have to fight that urge. And for us, it's rooted in our values and our vision. So it makes it easier for us to do it than maybe other orgs. So I think that's a big thing. And then really just caring about brand. You know, the amount of care people have about what is the brand? What is the experience? Uh, look, feel. Just it. we talk about it all the time. And sometimes it's a challenge or a fight or an issue to be so focused on on brand. But I think that commitment to brand is very unique and it's very strong. And I think it's allowed us to build a really strong brand. Yeah. And I think the first,
0: like the first comment's refreshing because it's, it's unique, but it's also challenging that like, ah, oh, we were complaining about trying to serve our 10,000 and how we couldn't do it. So I hope that is a challenge because it's like, hey, no, we can do this if we prioritize it. And through prioritizing it, it can contribute to long-term and sustainable growth. Uh, the second thing, though, is you mentioned brand, but I, I've always seen it. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that like the commitment to brand almost is a sub bullet of the first one, and that there's a a commitment to the community first, and the commitment to brand, which then you kind of teased out as experience, which I think is really important. Uh, that isn't commonly kind of Describe brand equals experience, but it's the experience for the community and how people are interacting with the organization. And it's that care for the community, sub bullet number one, or two, or three, brand, at least from my perspective. Is that, is that right? Or is there some other, is, or are they equal and maybe just complementary in how they fit into the growth strategy?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's more of the, the latter, but some of the former, and you're totally right. I think the misnomer people say, oh, I love your emails are so pretty, or your website's gorgeous, and that's all true. We've got an unbelievable creative team that has an unbelievable eye, and we care about the visual identity, but brand is not visual identity. Those two things are not the same. Visual identity is a part of brand. It's a visual manifestation of brand, but brand is way bigger. Right. Brand is the experience. It's the summation of every experience you have with the brand from calling customer success to visiting through the website, to canceling your monthly donation, to hearing Scott on a podcast. It's all these things combined to create brand. And when you have people who care about things like visual identity and how it's designed and how it looks, and you have people who care about the experience and the giving flow, and you have people that care about every little interaction when you call to cancel your donation, That's how you build a great brand. And that's why it's so freaking hard to do because everyone wants the, oh, so I just have like pretty pictures or, you know, like the shortcut to having a great brand. And It's not a shortcut. It's like doing the hard work day in and day out and that care throughout the org. And it starts with Scott and Vic and founders. And all the way through today, where you come in and you know, like this is critically important to the work that we do, is supporters and experience, and it summarizes or comes out as brand, right? Well, let's get into that in some of the hard work
0: uh, that you mentioned. Uh, one thing on the un, uh, here on unplugged is we really want to get in like to the weeds, like what's actually happening, what's working, what's not working. So, could you share a marketing initiative, strategy, campaign that? is outperforming expectations and kind of what did you learn and how are you pulling that forward into future marketing efforts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I had just like tons and tons of examples of everything being outperformed. Uh, it's tough. I mean, you look at macroeconomic factors, you look at pay digital and some of the stuff going on platforms, it's it's really tough. But an area where we've seen performance above expectation is in live events, Um You know, once one of the silver linings of having extremely high cost of acquisition on paid social channels is things that we probably never would have had to think about and explore when the Facebook YouTube train was a rolling. Now make way more sense. So we, you know, piloted things like direct mail and started looking at live events. And we've seen a lot of success in the early days with a few of our pilots where there's an audience of folks at a conference. Um. And we get time on stage, and we show a video, and we ask people to respond using their mobile phone right then and there, QR code, banded URL, and have a takeaway. And we've seen a really good response rate. And so we're not even there, right? We're we're not even the ones making the pitch. We kind of have someone who says, hey, here's an organization we know or care about, show a video, have people respond. And we didn't know how that would go, and it's gone, you know, really well. And so for us, uh, you know, pulling that forward or looking at it, I think there's a really interesting thing going on where a lot of direct-to-consumer or D2C brands like uh, Purple Mattress and Lisa and Allbirds and all these kind of digital-only, Instagram-ad-heavy kind of startups have all started to see their growth really flatline or stagnate a bit. And so now you can buy Purple Mattresses at Mattress Firm you know, you can buy all birds at certain retail locations. And I think the realization that they're coming to and that we're coming to to a degree is to go out and build the brand to the point where you can drive the traffic and get all the eyeballs to come to you is great when you own it. High margin, high success. But there comes a point where it gets really expensive. And then you have to think about, well, where are customers going? They're already buying mattresses here, they're already yeah. buying shoes here. So for us, <laughs> these peoples that are value-oriented are already going to these conferences, how can we find ways to just get in front of them and say, hey, have you thought about this? So it's a little bit of a trend, I think, across the subscription business as as well as for us saying, mm-hmm. where do people already gather and congregate and how can we be in that conversation and find a way to invite people to join us in the work that we're doing? So we're going to explore that a lot more. We've got um, a couple tours and some things You know plan and so whether you can plan tours maybe not but the idea of like where are people already gathering and how do we show up there i think is a really applicable strategy absolutely and i think it's it's also too it reminds me
0: of kind of like the like uh maybe 10 years plus years ago when you could only buy apple products from apple And then they expanded distribution. Now you can buy Apple products in Target, Walmart, pretty much anywhere you go, you can buy that. And in the same way, as you're saying, is like that also is the case for finding and engaging and capturing attention. And you don't always have to gather that yourself. You can also graft on to other gatherings, especially, and maybe this is something we can talk a little bit about. I would love your take on this is like, I also think as gatherings get, smaller, and more distributed. So there's more fracturing, both on like interest, uh, and visibility into that, because I feel like were, we're moving from this, like, you know, maybe 20, 20 plus years ago, we had the public square, then we had the personalized square, and now we're moving to the private square. And like, these private communities are really, really valuable, right? Like they have your audience. And instead of trying to recapture them to come to you and live in your area, how can you lean on them and partner well? And I think that's, as you mentioned, something anyone at any size can do if you just ask that question. Where are our supporters already hanging out?
1: Yeah, and I think it's like we're in an, yeah, an attention economy. You know, marketing is more than ever in the business of attention, and it's hard to get. It's fractured. It's all over the place, like you mentioned. You know, I was just reading something today about how iMessage group chats are like the most sacred place yeah. that are, and like, how you get in there? You know, and hopefully ads can't get in there, but it's just the, you got to figure out where are people going, how do we grab attention? Uh, and it's more
0: dynamic than ever. Yeah, I was just talking to um, James Martin over at Rally Corp this week about something. And I was like, we were talking about just like that. I was like, hey, I have a bunch of iMessage streams. I have some signal streams. I have some WhatsApp groups. I have some private Slack communities that I'm a part of. Even even on LinkedIn or Messenger or on Facebook, like I'm still more attracted to the chat or the private kind of smaller niche community, um, and in a more conversational way versus maybe like all the features of a group or a yep. page or stuff like that that maybe people used yeah, to yeah. look for. Um, like, how how do we think about this? Like, how, yeah, how do we how do we almost acknowledge that access is it cannot be. Uh, bought in some ways. Uh, You can't buy your way into these. You have to earn your way. So it's like kind of going back a little bit to like, you know, the owned, earned, bought or, you know, kind of model in marketing where it's like, okay, yeah, we have owned attention. We have bought attention or rented attention. And then we have earned attention. And that earned attention isn't just like PR and like a news clipping or like a free billboard. It's like access to these communities. Um, Anyways, digressing a little bit, but I do think this idea of capitalizing on where your supporters are already gathering in addition to earning direct attention is is huge. That's a a great insight. That kind of pulls us into like the next thing, which I think is sometimes also really helpful, which is, you know, experimentation and learning are huge within purposeful marketing. You've already mentioned that. Uh, When did something not meet expectations and what'd you learn from that? (laughs) Likely more scraps on the floor, uh, Than you know shining successes so let's get into
1: those <laughs> yeah i got i got plenty um you know one of the things is we're, we're really trying to ramp up the number of experiments we run and so we've ran over 100 experiments in the year or so that i've you know been there and the vast 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 majority of them aren't winners the majority of them are insignificant or no difference um, which is still a way to learn but mm. only about two out of ten For people hearing that, when you say, oh, we've done 100 experiences, give us like two
0: or three that you're like, what does that mean to you all? So people can kind of like, oh, uh, that's what you mean by experiment.
1: Like um, we break down testing. Everyone's like, oh, we should test. Right. You should absolutely test. But to to us, to me, there's three buckets of testing. There's things that you try. Low risk, just throw spaghetti at a wall. Let's see what happens. And you kind of hope something shakes out. That's one low risk, easy form of testing that a lot of people say when they test. is they're really just trying things. Then we do pilots, this is what we're doing a lot, live events, we're piloting TV, we're piloting direct mail, we piloted. Where there's not a there's not two groups, but we're saying for this time period, we're gonna invest some resources to try this strategy and we expect to see results between this range. And if so, then we can continue to do it. But it's very contained, right? It's like a, a pilot, we're gonna prototype this. Mm-hmm. So it's more sophisticated than just trying but it's still not an experiment. And then there's experiments. And this is more scientific. It's more rigorous. There's a control group. There's a treatment group or multiple groups or a holdout group. You have a clear hypothesis. Say, we, because we see that, we believe that when we do this, we'll expect a result of this. You measure it. There's statistical significance. That is an experiment. All are valid. And you have to use different ones at different times. It's not like one is the definitive, absolute only way. Like if you're small and don't have lots of volume, you should be trying things we're piloting things in certain areas you should experiment so when I say experiments I mean that last category like definitive A, B tests subject lines landing pages very controlled experiments we got a bunch of pilots and a lot of stuff that we're trying and so when I say experiments that's the bucket that I put them in and the majority of those don't come out as statistically significant (laughs) definitive this one worked most are like we still don't know (laughs) is where most of them shake out um and i think that's a good lesson because i think you, you go to conferences and you hear people speak or you think about charity water or other brands that you love and you're like oh they just must be crushing it and maybe they are but there more things fail than work generally speaking is is kind of the norm and i don't think we talk about that enough but that's definitely been the case on the experimentation side so i think that's like one big big thing is you fail more than you succeed generally speaking when you get into experimentation and trying things so that's That's hopefully helpful. I can give a few examples if you want.
0: Yeah, we'd love some examples because I also, I know you said most of them end in like insignificance or it's like, ah, I don't know, right? Um, But without significance, you still might be getting signal or common threads that you're kind of teasing at or like, oh, we should dig into that further or experiment again. So kind of, you know, maybe through an example or two what are some of those signals or threads that you're seeing in your current testing of marketing?
1: Yeah, so I think one that we've we've tried a few times is messing around with the gift array or the suggested donation amount, right? Um, so one of the latest ones was saying, well, because the economy is tough, we've seen a slight decline in average gifts. What about if we change the suggested giving amount from $40 a month, provides clean water to one person every month, to $20, uh, a lot more in reach of, of people to see if maybe we'll get a little smaller donation on a monthly basis, but more people possibly will say, yes, decent logic, seems to fit the time, run the experiment, no difference on conversions, slight decline in average gifts. And that's maybe the fifth or sixth gift array experiment that we've run and none of them have worked outside of one during year end. And so what what's interesting is when you're able to run a few experiments and you're like, oh yeah, insignificant, 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 in and of themselves, We didn't learn anything. When you stack three or four together, you go. Changing our gift array, the way that we're doing it at least, isn't a good use of our time and energy. We can't shift human behavior very much just by changing this one thing. So let's move on. Let's focus on our message. Let's focus on something else. So that's where volume and experimentation is really important because even if you just run one experiment, you can't make too much definitive proof because of one, but you run a few different times around the same kind of thing. You can more easily say, This doesn't seem to be like a big area for us, whereas we've seen some success with button copy, which is also we wouldn't have necessarily known. When we say join today instead of donate monthly, it actually really helps. And so now we can spend more time thinking about the button language that we use. So this is where the pursuit of learning leads to more macro learnings, which is the end destination anyways. So that's why... We focus so much on volume, and it doesn't matter to your point, like oh, that's insignificant. But we're constantly learning, and what's next, which is really, really key. Even if you take things off the table or eliminate options, you're still moving forward, right? Absolutely, I like that idea that even significant,
0: like it's, you're not always in pursuit of significance. You're also looking for signal and where to focus. And maybe you're ill, you're ill, you're ill, alloc, or you're ill allocating resources to the wrong area, or you're getting too caught up on subject lines because some you know, the last three experts you read online said subject lines are the way right. to optimize your emails. And it's like, well, maybe that's not like for you, or it's you're doing it wrong, as you as you mentioned. Um, we talked a lot about experimenting. And there's a topic that I know you and I both love. And I can't have you on the podcast and not ask you about it. It's about volume <laughs> versus relevance in emails. Uh, the age old question I got it two weeks ago is how many emails should I send during year end? <laughs> And I said, that's a great question. I
1: don't know. Yeah. So one that I think is really important that and we ran this experiment, we'll do more experimentation on this, is thinking about the influence of email on giving overall. One of the dangers of digital is we have so much minute data, then we'll gravitate towards the minute data. So we only look at email response rate or unsubscribe rate or open rate or click rate or whatever without spending enough time thinking about What impact does email have on our people to do the thing that we want them to do, Mm -hmm. which is give? And so what we ran is a holdout experiment. These people got four emails. These people got two. The last one was a fundraising email. And we looked at the response rate of the fundraising email. We looked at overall giving through email in that period. And then we stepped back and said, what about just all giving? We don't care if it came in via email at all and three different results. If you want efficiency, send fewer emails. You'll get higher response rates. You'll get more unsubscribes, actually, in a weird way, a higher unsubscribe rate if you send less volume. But it's a rate, not a volume play. If you want pure gross, send more emails. You'll get more unsubscribes, but you'll get more donors. So it's finding the balance of efficiency and gross. But then what's really interesting, when we stepped back, it was a 52% increase in incremental donations from people who received the four emails, whether they gave through email or not. Mm -hmm. And this type of analysis is really important for direct mail, for TV, for social. If all you do is like last click or attribution source, we are selling our humans and donors way short and overvalue or undervaluing all over the place. So for me, the biggest thing on email is like, what impact does email have overall? That's the biggest question that we should be asking, first of all. And then you can start having a question maybe more like, do we want to be efficient or do we need numbers that will take you down two paths? And ideally, it's a bit of a balance. And then the biggest thing is within your email file, you've got all kinds of segments, segments that are engaged, segments that aren't engaged, people who've given, people who haven't, you know, people who are likely to give again and people who aren't, people who are huge fans of yours and people who aren't. And we generally do a pretty bad job at anything identifying people outside of maybe transactional history, us included. We don't do a great job at this. So that's the the next level because the reality is one person just needs one email at your end. Truthfully, they'll tell you that and they actually do. Other people say I only need one email and they really need 12. <laughs> you know, it's just you don't really mm-hmm. know until you start mapping the right types of of data. And a lot of that comes from what people say and then their behavior and kind of stitching the two together. So I don't have a great answer on how many emails yeah. you should send either, but it's somewhat situational on strategy. And I think we need, all need to do a better job at taking a step back and say, do we really want people to give you email or do we want overall December to be successful? And email plays a role in that. And I think we forget about that too often. Yeah, 100%. I also think
0: the question comes from a place, an acknowledgement that pressing send is really hard. Hmm. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I brought this up with my team earlier this week. Is that like as as someone doing marketing, like pressing send, pressing publish, pressing whatever, is actually really hard. You're not sure. And you know, our our your old friend, your old colleague uh, Jeff over at Next After, I think recently at the conference, uh, the ne- the nonprofit innovation optimizations said we don't have to be experts. We have to be experimenters. Uh, and 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 in some ways, I was like you know, we feel so much like we need to know the answer before we press send, which is why pressing send is so hard. Uh, And you just don't like a lot of times, it's also different amongst different people. So how do we think less like a studio, like there's the right answer, and we're just trying to get there to be more like a lab mentality, like, Oh, we have no idea what the answer is. So we actually have to do things. And then also be patient enough to wait for index, like signal to do something hmm. next, like else. It's not like, oh, we're going to do all these things. It's like, hey, we're going to do something. Yeah. What happened? Right. Better understand it. Um, and that differs amongst different donor bases, different causes, different maturities of organizations, et cetera. Right. Well, enough about questions and kind of getting under the hood, like looking forward, what, what excites you about like running marketing at Charity Water, at a nonprofit, doing an, in, innovative, interesting things like what what has piqued your interest right now as we look forward in marketing?
1: Man, I mean the, the things that are really interesting here is again that more of the growth mindset that you'd find in you know high growth subscription or for profit is really interesting because that's not how a lot of us are trained or schooled in the nonprofit industry. So learning a lot about those types of things is is really cool and interesting. Um, we're starting to do a lot more surveying, uh, focus groups, customer interviews. Um, And that's really interesting as you try to learn more about the qualitative research side of things. It's something I wish I knew more about and spent more time learning earlier on in my career. Because Mm -hmm. I think especially now with data being a little bit more fractured and less reliable or easy to get, it puts more emphasis on your ability to, to do qualitative research. And I don't think that's something where we've trained up people very well how to write proper surveys and do customer interviews and things like that. So that's, that's kind of exciting personally. Um, And then TV, I mean, we're, we're getting into TV, but connected TV and the barriers to getting into connected TV are way lower than they've ever been. And so when you think about trying to reach people with your story and engaging with you as a, as a brand, it it is really interesting. And I realize it's maybe not applicable for everyone. but it's really exciting uh, f- for me and us as we think about uh, a channel and a medium that we haven't really been on before, and really learning all the ins and outs of of TV because it is a very unique, you know channel that's that's really interesting and exciting as well. I, I'm glad you brought up the word story again
0: and story like you have to have a good story to be able to distribute and optimize and the story that connects. Um the story of charity waters like from an outsider's perspective has been pretty consistent but how do you all think about the the story or the offer and how you're embedding that into your marketing and the importance of that versus optimization
1: experimentation you know pilots etc one one thing i like to use the term narrative a lot more than story because i think people hear story and think something and you can have a story that's useless mm but you have to have narrative in marketing and the difference being like, Oh, you know, I, I bought milk today and my son loved it. Like that's a story, but it has no narrative, no purpose. Narrative is like problem mentor solution, like all the story brand (laughs) principles of Don Miller or whoever. And it's pretty tried and true. Your marketing has to have narrative. You don't always have to have story. So I think it's a really key distinction For, for us. Scott, our founder, has a very clear hero's journey. We have a very clear story around people who are lacking access to clean water. They need water. We have the solution, but we need you to partner with us. Very clear story narrative. And we also have a story narrative around donors. Don't you wish you knew more about where your money went and what it did? So we basically have these three pretty clear story loops that we tap into and For us, we think they're not broken. And the challenge that I think we have is to say, this isn't broken. We don't have to change this that much. Adapt, tweak, customize for channel and audience. But like we fundamentally have a very clear, simple, great, powerful story. So our focus is a little bit more on reach, mechanics, channels, that type of thing. But you bring up a great point. A lot of organizations, their biggest challenge isn't mechanics, challenge you know tactic it's like culture <laughs> yeah. what is our narrative who is our audience and we have some of those problems but i think we're in a slightly different place where and we've tried to test out of that in different ways and nothing seems to work it's like okay i think we actually have just a very good story narrative we have to find ways to get new people to engage with it so we're in a slightly different place but you're absolutely right it is really about your your story or your narrative Yeah. And I think it goes back
0: to um, something I've been recently familiarized with, which is like the two by two grid where you take two opposing things and Mm. you map them and you put, you know, where do you fall within that? So maybe like the, the vertical axis is like, hey, we have high distribution versus we have low distribution. The other axis might be we have confusion in the narrative versus like strong narrative. And obviously you want to kind of map yourself, like where are we at, you know, in this journey? And maybe it's hey, we actually don't really have a good narrative, but we're getting tons of distribution. Maybe we go spend more time on the narrative and see the impact that has in distribution right. versus like, oh, we're not getting the distribution we have, so we need to move to find new distribution. Yep. And then where you guys sound like you're at, which is like, hey, we have distribution, we have narrative, but now we're trying to optimize and then unlock the next you know, chapter of narrative. Like you're trying to expand the aperture even more to increase distribution. But each of you listening is somewhere on that journey. And I think that's key too is like knowing where you're at because you could look at this conversation and be like, Brady told me to go run two tries, three pilots, and 72 experiments. And that's our plan (laughs) coming out of this. But it's like, you may not be there yet. You may be somewhere else. So being clear where you fall on that two by two grid and being able to communicate that too like, hey, we are not focused on experimentation because we are focused on clarifying the narrative in the offer. Whereas, yeah, thank you for sending me, you know, forwarding me Charity Water's latest email, executive director. I really appreciate it. I like this email too. Uh, I've been, I've been the culprit of doing that. (laughs) Um, But like, here's where we're focused on. So being clear where you're at, I think is a huge takeaway. I'm even taking from, from your guidance, uh, Brady. And thanks for going unplugged on that a little bit and giving us, you know, behind the scenes look, not everything is is always working like like maybe it seems. Uh, everyone's kind of just pushing through and experimenting and learning. Hey,
1: I'm William Henry. I'm the content marketing manager here at Feather and I'm here to tell you about an amazing resource we have available for those of you doing purposeful marketing, the in-flight briefing. Every Tuesday, we'll send to your inbox the essential bite-sized information you need to take your marketing strategy from sputtering along to soaring. We think doing purposeful marketing is fun. So even though we'll be sharing a lot of new ideas and linking out to some thought-provoking content, we're gonna make this briefing feel like the most important part of the flight, the snacks. We know you have many options when you fly, so we hope you'll consider joining us in the air. Subscribe today at feather.co slash inflight. That's feather without the E dot co inflight.
0: Are you cool with a quick lighting round? Let's do it. Okay. Question number one, what book on slash relating to marketing do you wish you'd read earlier in your career?
1: Yeah, I was, I read this relatively early, but I wish I read it even earlier and it's winning the story wars by Jonah Sachs. And a lot of what we just talked about in terms of narrative and difference between narrative and story and so much of story brand and Donald Miller, which I also uh, referenced, it's the same type of thing. Some people have seven elements or five, but like, the the main roots and narrative are there. And it was a big aha moment for me about the role of marketing, being a mentor and finding out what do people really care about. And like in our case, yes, people care about water. Not this many people. What we're tapping into is people's desire to create a better world, to live out their values, to be a good person, making good decisions. And oh, that shows up as giving through water, but we're not selling water, right? We're selling something bigger. And I was like, whoa, that was a big aha. And then also just knowing like, we're not the hero, we're the mentor. So that whole narrative just clicked for me and made a lot of sense and shifted a lot of what I think. And it's, it's written really well, too. He's, he's a great writer. That's one I've not read, but I am putting
0: it on my bookshelf. Question number two on the lightning round is, uh, what's your go-to marketing
1: axiom? Um, yeah. No, it's it's definitely borrowed, um, and the short version is, it's only rock and roll, and it's a short version of a Bruce Springsteen quote, and I don't even like Bruce Springsteen, and I thought it was my dad's quote, and then I came to find that it's actually a Bruce Springsteen quote, but the longer version is something like, you have to hold these two different ideas, two seemingly competing ideas in your hands at the same time, and one is, when before you go out onto stage, you have to think, this is the most important in the world this concert this performance that i'm doing right now is the most important thing in the world and at the same time you say it's just rock and roll and i think that's really key because we can get so like the work we do is literally saving lives for people who don't have have access to water we miss a pilot it means someone will not get water as fast as they really would and if you really want to wear that weight you can wear that weight and it will cripple you because Mm -hmm. you won't make the decisions you need to do to grow Because you're like, we can't screw it up. So you have to find a way to be like, this is the most important work in my life, you know, to to help people get access to clean water. Same time, it's just marketing. It's just an experiment. It's just some money to help uncover what's going on. And you get that equation wrong on either side and you're in a lot of trouble. And it applies to so many things in life. And so I, I just love that that concept and and I think it's one of the things I do okay I don't have a lot of skills but I think that's one of the things I do all right is balance these types of things yeah I love that it's just rock and roll and that's
0: fitting for our unplugged studio yeah, there you go. <laughs> so that's great uh, yeah no and it rolls into the next one you know one thing about this is we know that we can find inspiration in an example we can find inspiration in in others and maybe even beyond our space um, but we can also find inspiration outside of it. And specifically, I want to hear, you know what three songs could you not live without, or what songs inspire you if you wanted to take it a different way and uh, how you think and how you kind of experience?
1: Okay, I'm gonna take this two other ways because one, I'm notorious for not knowing lyrics. At all, like they come in, I don't know, I don't hear them. I don't really listen to them. My wife makes fun of me all the time. Like my son's favorite song that he listens to is horrible, lyrics-wise.
2: And she was like, how can you <laughs> let him
1: listen to this? And I was like, I literally just, I don't pay attention to lyrics. So I'm not the best person on it. I'm not going to ask you to sing that Yeah, one. no, no. Uh, even though we have the E on the podcast, <laughs> we're not going to get that explicit. No, you, you don't want that. <laughs> so that's, that's one caveat. But uh, I asked my wife this question but I phrased it differently. I was like, what three songs do you associate with me? Which is not the question. But I loved her answer, so I want to I wanna maybe use that as a proxy. So here's the three songs that my wife yes. would say she would associate with me. First one was uh, Pony by Genuine, <laughs> Which, I mean, that's a good answer. We've been married 14 years. You know, fire's still there. That's good. Uh, Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy by Big and Rich. Uh, yeah. Wow yeah um there's a theme uh, well,
0: catching on to it no that
1: one's that one's d- different <laughs> i grew up in real rural alberta big country music I uh, played baseball in college that was one of my walkout songs played for a baseball team called cowboys when my uh high school friends when we get back together we always play that song and sing every lyric and so it's it's a it's an important thing <laughs> and then the last one is uh say my name by destiny's child um Which would make pretty much any list. It would have probably been the three songs I can't live out. I just, that song comes on and it just, it stirs something up inside me. So three pretty, pretty random, pretty random songs there for you to choose from, at least what my wife says about me. I love that alternative question. So we'll
0: definitely put that on the list of maybe options for the lightning round. So thanks for uh up leveling uh, this podcast. Yeah, or sidetracking. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, we're we're mixing it up. You know, it's a stupid <laughs> session. Go, there you so go. uh last but not least, as we close out, uh, I would love to know who you see is blazing new trails in purposeful marketing at nonprofits, or who would you like to see on the show? There's a lot of, even
1: though it's hard to come up with them on on the spot, but a, a couple. One that I, I wrote down beforehand is Francesco Rembroghetti. He's at UNICEF. He wrote a book called Hooked on a Feeling. He's unbelievably experienced both in the US and in Europe and around the world. He's, he knows so much about donor psychology, which is great. And he's doing some really interesting stuff. I just heard about it. recently. He's experimenting with kind of bonds as loans, as ways to get capital investment. I'm chatting with him next week. So just a really interesting, smart, Person with tons of experience who is also just a great name and a great accent. So I think he'd be he'd be great. And then the other one is is Abby Fuhrer from Donors Choose, um, who I've never actually like heard on stage or heard on a podcast. I'm I'm fortunate to be in an email group where she's she's one, but I look at Donors Choose a lot um, in terms of other nonprofits that are doing interesting things, and she's really leading marketing and growth and blending kind of creative and product and marketing and uh, whether she'd come on or not, I'm not sure, but she's doing her and her team are doing amazing work. Yeah. Well,
0: I'll have to tell her, her email pal, Brady Josephson was on the pod and recommended her. So I, uh, maybe I'll, 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 use that as my wedge or maybe we have to get more famous people before she's willing to come on.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's going to help you out much, yeah. but you can try. I, do
0: love, I will, I will, um, we'll kind of wrap on that with the studio session, but like, it's interesting, you let you land and end on like, oh, in my private email group I have. And we just talked about this idea of like, how do you get access to these things and how we're moving from the public to the personal to the private. Uh, and that was just another great example where like, the reality is we're living in these like private squares. And the question is, how do we gain access to them? So it was a great example of how that's showing up. Brady, always love and enjoy and have so much fun having you in the studio so thanks for being here
1: same thanks for having me anytime
0: do that. We'll fix that up in post. <laughs> just got every, they're, every they're time, time talk 2x anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime I spoke, yeah, you can just cut that one out. No one really signs up to listen to this podcast for <laughs> yeah, right. me. So. anywho Brady, always appreciate it. I'm glad we are both Liverpool fans. Um and not enemies. <laughs> we'll change our texts uh, now. We'll Yeah, I I'm, <laughs> I'm like so thrown off by that. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> what was there someone in the next after office that was an Arsenal fan?
1: Jeff what? Jeff Giddens is big Arsenal.
0: Maybe, but I I didn't really know or spend much time with Jeff. Maybe. I don't know.
1: We're um, on the so same page uh, now. It's all good, Gabe. We are. We're, we're all good. <laughs> it's, so all good. Well, maybe, it's all good. Maybe now. our team can actually
0: start like winning. That would be great. <laughs> oh, my God. So I'm glad soccer's <laughs> finally football is finally coming back. Like, Gosh, it's been boring weekends. And MLS just doesn't do it for me. Agree. Okay. Thanks, Brady. Right, man. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye, guys.